Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, all of our troubles will be where? They'll be out of sight. So goes the Christmas carol that you've probably heard in the mall or on the radio already at some point this year. Uh, Christmas carols tend to be uh, incredibly optimistic about how wonderful this time of year will be and how far away our troubles will get from us. But let me ask you, are your troubles really out of sight because Christmas is here? Or how about this one? Have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. I don't know if there'll be snow, but have a cup of cheer. Or similarly, this one, it's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. Now, maybe it is the happiest season of all, but if it isn't, what's your reaction when someone comes up to you and tells you to be of good cheer when you're actually in the midst of despair? You might actually get angry at that person for just telling you to be positive. And yet our Christmas carols that we sing are just inevitably this kind of joyful optimism. Now, um, one of the, the, the things that we do at Christmas is we kind of romanticize and, and be a little bit sentimental about this time of year and about the possibilities that exist to us in the world. So uh, one New York Times article, for instance, wrote, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. How's that going for us? <laughs> I don't think that the Christmas season inevitably produces that in us. And actually, I think it might be a better idea for us when we look at the Christmas story as the Bible tells it, instead of romanticizing things to say that Christmas actually confronts us with our biggest problem and also the solution to it. That's our big idea today, that Christmas confronts us with our biggest problem and its solution. Last week, we dove into the Advent season with the idea that Advent begins in the dark and actually uh, contains some themes that maybe we wouldn't usually think about when we listen to the usual Christmas songs that we listen to. It actually forces us to think about God's judgment, that God is coming again, and that Jesus came to bring this kind of judgment to say, "Who, who did you put your faith in? In this life, we reflect on repentance. The darkness in the world reminds us that we ought to look inside and see is there any darkness within myself that I need to repent of, that I need to bring into God's light. We reminded ourselves that Advent is a time of anticipation and waiting. We remember the first coming of Christ, but we also anticipate that Christ is going to come again to set all things right. Now, a couple of responses I got from last week that I expected to get, as I told you that Christmas doesn't get me as excited as it gets some other people. Uh, some people came up to me almost in a whisper and said, that's kind of how I feel too about Christmas. Uh, and then others came up to me and said, I actually find all these things about Christmas that, that you don't find very inspiring to be very inspiring in my life, the lights and the trees and the gift giving and all of that. To which I say, that's fantastic, and I really hope that it does continue to bring you inspiration. You should celebrate that. And I went home after last Sunday and put up my Christmas tree and all of my decorations too. Um, So I'm enjoying those things as well. But Christmas shouldn't just be about all of the, the happiness and kind of the fake joy that we produce in this time of year. It should actually force us to confront some deeper and darker realities in our world. We tend to, as I said, romanticize the Christmas story for our comfort. We sanitize it 
Uh, in fact, in the way that we traditionally understand Christmas in the West, and even in the way that we understand the Bible stories around Christmas, some, there are some ways in which we've misunderstood or misinterpreted the stories, and that's a whole nother sermon probably. But there are ways in which we, we don't truly understand what happened, and we've modernized it. And in some ways, it softens what should actually be a story that should kind of hit us in the face a little bit. Um, I quoted a, an Episcopalian priest named Fleming Rutledge a few times last week. I want to quote her again now. She has just been talking about how in some of the artwork that we produce around the, 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 the manger scene, for instance, uh, as Mary and Joseph and the baby and the shepherds come, and Mary does not look at all like she's just had a baby, and the baby's always so happy and smiling and delightful, and the shepherds are handsome, strapping young guys that are uh, surrounded by light, and it's just very idyllic. And, and uh, this is how we think about the nativity scene, right? And all of the nativity things we set up in our houses and things, everybody looks so put together. And she writes this. She says, I think we can safely say that Luke the evangelist, who wrote about this in his book, not to mention John the Baptist would be utterly scandalized to see the cutesy, cutesy shepherds and sheep and babies and Virgin Marys strewn about the landscape these days. I don't mean to sound harsh, but we need to know. We need to know as a matter of life and death that these things in their contemporary sanitized versions may actually prevent us from understanding that in the words of John the Baptist's father, the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. And she gets even a little bit graphic after that. She says, we need to know that this news is able to transfigure the ugliest of shepherds, the most birth damaged babies and the violated pregnant women dead in the ditches of war-torn countries of our world. In other words, this news of Christmas ought to be good news in the most desperate circumstances that we can find on earth. And when we kind of sanitize and romanticize the story, it takes that edge off of it. So here's what I want to do today. I've titled this The Politics of Christmas, not because I want to talk a lot about politics today, but to say that there are elements to the Christmas story that we need to understand in the first century context that actually help to give the story a, a, a kind of power that sometimes we, we, we miss when we don't focus on these things, when we don't see these things. And it's going to remind us that Christmas confronts our greatest need and provides us with the solution. So let's talk first about the politics of the Christmas story. What is the situation that Jesus' birth emerged out of? What do we need to understand about that time period? Well, first we need to know that the Jewish people were under intense Roman occupation. If you remember Old Testament history, the nation of Israel was split into two and the northern kingdom was carried off into exile into Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah was carried off to Babylon. But after a period of time, those people in Babylon were able to return. But after they returned, they never experienced the same kind of autonomy or control or freedom that they experienced before. They were always under someone else's control. And since about 60 BC, they'd been under Roman control. Now, Rome separated out their, their empire into different provinces and they labeled these different provinces in different ways. There were some provinces that they called imperial provinces. And in these provinces, there was a heavy Roman presence because they knew that there was going to be rebellion against the Romans. Now, the province of Judea, which includes the cities of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, was one of these imperial 
provinces. There was a heavy Roman presence there because the Jews wanted to rise up against the Romans. They wanted to rebel. And so it wasn't uncommon in cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem to see Roman soldiers walking around because they were there to keep the peace, to keep their thumb on the people. I've never seen a Roman soldier in a nativity set. And yet it's possible, it's probable that Roman soldiers were around this story. Now, we read that the, um, the census was called by Caesar Augustus to be taken of the entire Roman world. What was the purpose of these, this census? It, it actually wasn't just so that Caesar knew how many people were in his kingdom. It actually was taken so that they could register land and attach land to a specific person so that the Romans could tax that person based on the land that they owned. So it really wasn't about the number of people as much as it was about taxation. They wanted to take the wealth out of these provinces and send it back to the empire so that the empire could do whatever it is that they wanted to do with all of this wealth. So you can see that the Jewish people would have been unhappy about this too. Um, In fact, when the, the Jewish Roman war started in AD 66, the Romans burned down the temple in AD 70. So that gives you a picture of how that went. But when they started this war, the first thing that they went after was the tax archives. And the Jewish people would find the tax archives and they would burn them because once they burned them, the Romans had no way of knowing which land belonged to which person and who they should tax and how much they should tax. That's what they wanted to get rid of. And so there, there's also records of a census that happened a little later on, about 100 years after, in which people were lying about the land that they, that they owned or didn't own because they didn't want to pay the tax that the Romans were wanting them to pay. And how did the Romans respond? Well, they tortured people that they suspected were lying. So this is the kind of atmosphere that's going on when we read about the story of Jesus in Bethlehem. The city would have been packed with people returning to register their properties, There would have been this kind of angry undertone to everything, this kind of tension that existed throughout the streets. There would have been Roman soldiers wandering around to make sure that there wasn't any kind of uprising with all of the people that had suddenly flooded into this small, poor village called Bethlehem. There was this uh, idea that the, the Romans were there to take not only the Jewish money, but also the Jewish identity So really, when we sing about, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, it probably wasn't very still. It probably actually was bursting at the seams and there was just, they were just on the edge of a kind of violent situation in the city. And this is where Jesus is born to. Add to that, the ruler of this province was King Herod. Herod We'll talk more about him on Christmas Eve, but he's an insecure leader. He's Jewish by birth, but he's installed by Rome. And so neither side really loves him a lot. The Jews especially hated him. And he was a, a, a violent person. He's insecure in his leadership. So anyone he felt was a threat to his leadership, he would kill, including his favorite wife, and he had many wives, and some of his own children. Uh, in fact, there's an apocryphal saying, probably apocryphal saying, uh, credited to Caesar Augustus, in which he says it's better to be Herod's pig than his son because Herod's pig had a better chance of survival than his kids. This is how insecure he was. And so there was also instances where uh, Roman leaders would go into the temple and do things that the Jews would have considered completely sacrilegious. So all of this is going on. All of this is happening as Jesus is born in Bethlehem. 
it's not a very calm situation. It's very politically volatile. There is a very, uh, very real suspicion and anger towards political authority. Some of you maybe can relate with that today. Some of you look at the political situation today and you get very angry. And you, you might think that the government is trying to take away Christian identity with some of the restrictions that we've faced. Well, the good news is that this is where Jesus appeared. And this is where Jesus emerged. Now, so embedded in Jewish theology at this time then was the idea that God was going to enter in, he was going to intervene, and he was going to save the people. And there, there had been Old Testament references to this kind of Messiah. And also there is intertestamental Jewish writings, meaning between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 years, where Jewish people had been writing and writing about this Messiah that was going to come. And over time, this Messiah had taken on a more definitive kind of figure. And the the person that they looked to in the Old Testament that most reflected what this person was going to be like was Moses. Moses appeared when the Israelites were under the thumb of the Egyptians, and he spoke to political power, to Pharaoh, and said, let my people go. And through a miraculous series of events, he led God's people out of Egypt. And so the Jewish people were saying, someone like Moses is going to come. He's going to stand up against the political power, and he's going to set us free from this Roman oppression and this Roman occupation. This was the kind of common image in Judaism at the time. One place where we read about this is in a prophecy, in a song that was sung by the the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is actually a key character for us in Advent because he actually went to prepare the way for Jesus. And at the birth of, of John the Baptist, his father sang this kind of song. And there's a whole story about Zechariah which you can read before that in in Luke chapter 1. But this is what Zechariah said. I want you to pay attention to the themes. What was this Messiah going to do? Verse 68 of Luke chapter 1. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And the house of his servant David means the city of Bethlehem. This is where David was born. It's the house of David. And if a king was born in the house of David, there were some expectations automatically attached to this person. So he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him for all our days. And then he shifts to talk not about Jesus anymore, but about John the Baptist, his, his son. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So notice two things. Notice the expectation that the Messiah was going to come and rescue them from their enemies and from the people that hated them. And then also notice that Jesus was going to come and shine on those living in darkness, on those in the shadow of death. He would guide their feet into paths of peace. Remember, Advent begins in the dark and ends with the light of Christ. So there's this expectation that surrounds Jesus' birth. Now, the question that comes next is, what did Jesus do with that expectation? 
Did Jesus live into it? Did he fulfill it? Did he change it? What did he come to do? What was Jesus' political response? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, that Jesus, his name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means Savior. And the verb to save is the verb yasa. And so Matthew 1.21 says this, His name will be called Yeshua, for he will yasa his people. He will come to save them. That's why he's come. But how did he come to save is the question. Who did he come to save and how did he come to save them? Jesus was very careful in his ministry to redefine his mission as not someone who's come to bring political freedom, but to bring freedom from a bigger problem, the most pressing problem, which was sin. It wasn't a primarily a political mission, though it's probably incorrect to say it was apolitical, but it wasn't primarily a political mission. And, and Zechariah saw this in his prayer. He, he sees in verse 77 that Jesus is going to come to give the people the knowledge of their salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is what Jesus will come to proclaim. We see this in a pretty striking way in a story that's told in Luke 13. It's a very fast story. We, we can read over it and miss it pretty quickly. But there's a group of people that come to Jesus and they have this question about something that's just happened with some really uh, intense political ramifications. 13 verse 1, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Okay, what's that saying? There was a group of people from Galilee that came to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices, and for whatever reason, Pilate and the Roman soldiers killed them as they were offering their sacrifice. It was like they're being killed in church because they were worshiping God. So there's a clear expectation on the part of the people to be like, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Like, if there's a political part to your mission, like now's the time to kick it into gear because the political authorities have overstepped in a big way here. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus here could have taken the opportunity to say, how dare Pilate do that? And let's go after the Romans. Instead, he said, no, actually, you have the same problem that the Romans have and that the Galileans who were killed have. It's that you need to repent. Because the biggest problem you have is the sin that separates you from God. It's not the Romans, actually. It's sin. That's the problem. We see this play out in the, the life of John the Baptist as well. He's a fascinating character because he prepares the way for Jesus. He, he points people to Jesus and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, after me is coming someone who's greater than me because he was before me. And he, he constantly was pointing people to Jesus. And yet later on in his ministry, he's thrown in jail. Now he's thrown in jail because he was criticizing King Herod for marrying the ex-wife of his brother. So basically, he married his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist says to him, this isn't right. He's speaking the truth to power. And what does that get him? It gets him thrown into jail. And so John the Baptist is sitting in jail, and he has this moment where he must be thinking to himself, if Jesus really came to save us from those who are oppressing us, why hasn't he done so? And why am I sitting in jail, even though I had this great calling to prepare the way for the Lord? 
And so we read in Matthew 11, verse 2, when John, who is in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one that's to come or should we expect someone else? Remember, this is the guy who is confidently proclaiming that Jesus was the one. And now when he's sitting in, in prison at, at the hands of the Romans, he's saying, wait, wait a minute, Jesus, are you actually the one? Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is basically saying, all of these things that I've listed here are things that were prophesied about the Messiah, and I am accomplishing them all. These are the things that are the most important. And this is what I'm doing. Yes, I am the one who is to come. Jesus speaks to the Romans himself, speaks to Pilate himself in John 18 when he's been arrested. Pilate's asking him, what is it that you've done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Well, Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In other words, Jesus says, I didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. I didn't come to overthrow a government and set up my own earthly government because political systems will ultimately disappoint because they don't answer our deepest questions. So Jesus' political response is actually to redirect our attention to a greater problem. And the Christmas story ought to confront us with this greater problem that we have been separated from God by our sins. And in fact, the problem was so big that God had to intervene himself into human history. And the love of God so great that he would intervene into human history. So what then is our response to Jesus in Advent, considering these themes and the politics that surround Jesus' entry into the world? Well, two parts probably. One is if you haven't believed yet, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, this Advent season should cause you to confront the greatest challenge that Jesus says that you have, which is the sin that separates you from God. This is the problem for which Jesus came into the world. This is why this little baby was born and placed into a manger. This is why he would grow up to die on a cross. And to be raised to life again is that this separation from God might be healed, that our sins might be forgiven, that our debt might be paid, that we can approach God and have relationship with him. The book of Romans in chapter 3 verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But the good news that we read in Romans 10 is that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believed and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And as the scriptures say, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so against the sentimentality of the Christmas season comes this message that we are lost and need help. And so Christmas confronts us with this problem and asks us to humble ourselves at the feet of this child 
to accept what he came to bring. Now, if you have received Christ already, what is the challenge that Christmas presents to us? Well, it's actually to celebrate the peace that God has made possible with us in God. Now, Jesus says in John, 24, uh, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. In all of its systems, and all of its wisdom, I don't give you the same things in the way that the world gives. Instead, don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Jesus has bring, brought us peace in the realm where it truly matters. Yes, there are still problems that we face. Our problems have not gone away because it's Christmas time. But actually, our greatest problem has been solved. And our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so despite the challenges that we face and despite maybe how you feel about the political situation of the day, Jesus meets us in the midst of that and he gives us peace that transcends understanding. And this is what we celebrate. Our troubles are not miles away. Yet our most important problem has been dealt with. And Christmas confronts us with this problem and provides us with a solution. I'll end with this quote from Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas. He says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental and realistic way of looking at life. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance, but it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. But nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. Because Jesus is a light for us when all of the other lights go out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided for us in the ways that we need the most. Thank you that this Christmas season confronts us with the challenges of of the world and reminds us that you ultimately will save us from the darkness of the world, but also that you have saved us from the darkness of our sin. I pray for those who are on the fence or considering whether or not to put their faith in in you. I pray that your peace and the, the solution that you offer would be so compelling and overwhelming that they would draw close to you in faith. For those of us who have already put our faith in you, may we find great solace this Christmas season in the peace that you have won for us and the peace that you continue to offer to us. Thank you for what you have done, the love that you have shown, and the power that you've displayed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.